Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Guilty Feminists, and welcome to this special Culture Club edition of the podcast. My guest today has been a stand-up comedian and comedy writer for many years. She's a regular at the Edinburgh Fringe and on BBC Radio 4. She's now written her first book, The Funny Thing About Death, all the profits from which are going to Macmillan Cancer Support. Please welcome the incredible Joe Caulfield. Woo! For me. <laughs> Joe, it's so wonderful to have you on uh, I loved your book, The Funny Thing About Death, so much, and I read it really in two or three sittings. Um, it was a real page-turner, beautifully written, and one of the most vulnerable, open, honest books uh, about death and about the love for your sister. And you didn't just sort of paint her in one shade, as you know we often do when someone dies. We just mm-hmm. want to focus on what was positive about them. But you you sort of honour her with the honesty of her in all her glory, her flaws, mm. her 
best moments, her worst moments. And it really is something. I'm, I'm so impressed by it. What led you to write this book? What was this? Did it just come out of you? Did you feel compelled to write it? Did you think long and hard before you did it? It started as a compulsion of uh, just getting thoughts out of my head. I, just things going round and round in my head to do with our relationship, to do with not quite being able to believe that she wasn't here. I think it took me about two years to really grasp that she had gone. Um, so I just wrote some things down and then I did put it out on Twitter because I was a bit like, I feel, do other people feel this? And then getting that feedback from people, then I thought, oh, maybe I have Maybe I have something to say. And also because I got very angry about the positivity around cancer because they seem to be constantly, you know, Channel 4. And I remember hearing the continuity announcer going, because we've all had enough of cancer. Here's stand up to cancer. Now, obviously, I want people to raise money uh, to fight cancer. But sometimes it just all seems very glib. And it seemed like a dirty little secret that millions of people are still dying from cancer. There's a lot about beating cancer, but not so much about dying and not so much about dying quietly without telling everybody everything. It seemed the fashion that you had to, you know, let everybody know everything. So I was like, well, that there's another way to deal with it, too. So I want to share that. So at first it was just everything pouring out. It wasn't a book. It was just my head on paper. And then I think it was getting feedback that I thought, or maybe there is a book and also the idea that I could use Annie's writing. Because of her being a writer, I thought, well, this would appeal to her because then people will hear her voice and get to know her. And that was mainly what it was. I wanted people to see what, you know, to feel her, to see what kind of person she was. And I was worried because she was very funny and I was worried, oh, maybe that's not coming across. She could, you could take everything I'm saying as just her being grumpy, but actually it's very funny. So I thought, you know, her writing, she's better at getting that across than me. So putting that in there as well. Her funny writing, but some of the more serious stuff as well. One of the nicest things somebody said to me was the partner of Linda Smith. Uh, Linda died of cancer at 47. And he just sent me a note just saying, uh, it's a huge gaping hole in your life that will never be filled. And it made me laugh. <laughs> I was the first time I laughed because I thought, oh, thank you. That's what it's like. And I thought it was funny that he didn't uh, try and sugarcoat it or anything, and he didn't offer any form of consolation. And that was actually what I wanted at that moment, for someone just to say, this is absolutely awful, and it doesn't get better. And that made me feel good. I fully get that. And as much as we want to comfort each other, sometimes it's just good to acknowledge if you're not feeling better about it, that's normal. That's human. There's good reasons why you're not going to feel better about it. And uh, I mean, my experience with grief is it it doesn't hurt any less, but it hurts less often. And that's not maybe not true for everyone either. It depends on your relationship with the person. It depends how mm. close you were. It depends how connected you were. It depends what other tent poles are in your life. You know, like it's so personal. And that's what I got from this book is actually – this is not an account of death. This is an account of being the sister of Annie and losing Annie. And that it, what that does is it ignites everyone's personal relationship with it. Instead of it being some book where you go, this is how you cope with death, you, reader, I don't know. Uh -huh. yeah. It's just like all I can tell you is this is who Annie was and who Annie was to me. And 
what it's like losing Annie. And that's in the personal, you get the universal because in the ways in which I experienced grief and still experienced grief about my father, I felt those connection points because they were so personal and some of them were very, very different. But then that made me think about the ways in which losing my father or my relationship with my sister that I grew up with or my biological sisters or how how those things might be different or in fact the same and have resonances. And I, I, what the biggest thing I got from this book was I was like, oh, I really know Annie. I felt like I really, obviously I don't really know her. I didn't meet mm-hmm. her and I don't want to minimize uh, people who did know her, but I felt like your honesty and your really beautiful portrayal of her and your featuring her writing, I felt like, oh, I know who this person was. And that was a wonderful gift to be given in a book by such sensitive writing. Um, how important was it for you to tell us about who Annie really was in all her facets? Because she just seems like such a mm. a really unique, wonderful person to know with so much life and personality and yeah. in, in and all of life, because life isn't just one note lovely, yeah. you know. Complicated. Yes. yes. Compli- yeah. Very complicated person uh, who was incredibly lovable, and I don't think she knew how lovable she was. And it was really important. And, and also just such a great character. I thought, you know, it's ridiculous that she's not still here, you know, because mm-hmm. she had so much to offer. And, and I felt, just felt she was worth knowing. And so if I could, I mean, that, you saying that is the most wonderful thing that I want to get from having written the book is that people say, oh, I really feel I knew her. And a couple of people have said, oh, I've gone onto Amazon to find her books because I want to hear more of her voice. Um, which is absolutely the best thing and is very much appeal to her ego to go. I can hear her going, yes, you see, I am more interesting. And <laughs> so that it, it's sort of, yeah, and it was also because I looked up to her so much and even with her faults, because I think it's, you know, that's what unconditional love is. You don't care about their faults. You see them and you, uh, it doesn't change how you feel. But I also thought, oh, how do I go on? Have I... I've only, I've always had her and her ahead of me, you know, Mm. so I've sort of watched her and then maybe gone this way on my own, but I've got, I can see where she's going. So I've had someone ahead of me. And I think sometimes that, that maybe made life easier for me than it was for her. So it was thinking about kind of who am I now? She's not here. Am I who I am a lot because of her? So there's a lot to go through as well as just the missing of the person. Mm. Yes, it, 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 that's so true. It, it changes who you are when mm. someone you love who's always been there for you dies. When my father died, I thought, who do I do it for now? And I thought, I was so surprised because I didn't know I was doing it for him. But I, I sort of realised that everything I'd ever done was really just me drawing a picture and going, Daddy, do you like it? And it was a <laughs> yes. terrible thing to realise that, you know, I'd moved to another hemisphere and I'd done all these, you know, things, some of which he didn't really even understand what I was doing in the way that your parents don't always know what you're doing in show business or don't get it or whatever. Um, but it was that and it was that just overnight half my unconditional love was gone. And mm. could never be replaced because, you know, there are people like, you know, your parents sort of have to, you know, they don't have to, yeah. but often unconditionally love you. And I think I got that feeling with Annie that her love for you was unconditional mm. and how important 
that was, even though she could be difficult, it's a sort of peeling away of something that is absolutely tangible in your life in terms of your your attachments. Um, But I also absolutely loved it just as a sort of a really brilliant account of what it was like being a young person in the 1980s. Mm. And like in the book, you talk about hitchhiking Mm. with your sister when you were teenagers. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And your parents were okay with that. And your parents seem quite protective. And anyone who would let their teenagers hitchhike knowingly now. Yeah, my parents are, uh, I mean, my dad's not here now, but I think my, my dad was always a little more obsessed with himself. Um, so I think it was things like that that they they didn't notice or think through that maybe. Um, but also Annie, she was 20, so I was 16. So I think if they just thought, well, Annie's an adult now, that'll be fine. Um, and as I say, I think they were a bit busy with themselves. So yeah. and even I at 16 knew it was a dumb idea. Yeah. But it was that thing of my big sister knows and Annie didn't ever want to think anything through too much because that might stop you doing something and and throw yourself into it and then you'll have some stories to tell. And um, so, of course, it was terrible because she would always sit in the front and uh, and then give me the sign when she was would get groped, which she would. Uh, oh, and my then we God. got into a lorry and that was the, the it was the lorry one was when uh, we were Swiss Alps. And I remember because we were slowing down, it was hairpin bends and I was terrified of that. And she said right the ne- and said to me in the next bend, get your rucksack, jump out. And so that's exactly what we did. And then we're there. Uh, but, you know, all sorts of terrible things. I mean, we, we never got actually attacked, but we did get, you know, there was lots of attempts because people would go, what on earth are two women, young women doing yeah. here? Well, 16-year-old, um, you're barely a yeah. woman. You know, you're a girl, really. You're still a yeah. minor. You, there's one story where you get driven into a forest. and Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's so terrifying. And it was so clearly what was going to happen. And this yes. was the thing with Anne was like she would always want it to turn out well. So she would kind of push on through. So this man, and he was quite handsome as well, older man, but I mean, older, obviously could have been 30 for, you know. Yeah, we for all so you young. know, retrospectively, yeah. Yeah, so, and he was quite handsome and Annie was very excited chatting away with him in French and I could see her enjoying it, you know, because she was always a little outside herself going, look at me living this life because uh-huh. uh, I'm going to write that down now. And then he turned off the road and said, I know a good place to camp. And then the road became not a road and was a track and we were going into woods and then we were completely in a wood. And I remember thinking, this is like Little Red Riding Hood. This is the beginning of every horror film is girls being driven into a wood. And then he left us there and said, it's a good place to camp. And he Mm. left. And I thought, well, this seems a really scary place to camp, you know, even before knowing he was trying to molest us. But we started to set up the tent and then I saw him. And my blood mm. ran cold. And I just said to Annie, he's back. It's the man. Oh, and then apparently, it were, he said that he had put money on the windscreen uh, so that when we got in the car, we knew that there was going to be some sort of transaction. <gasps> and I, all I remember, yes, he said that he'd given a sign. So he assumed that we would be okay with it. And all, Annie was talking to him in French. And this was funny because it made me think how different we were. I was standing behind her with a saucepan ready uh, to hit him oh. over the head, right? 
And then I remember the phrase, cut a la main. And I thought, is that like hand job? That's what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. But he was arguing that he'd put the money in there. So he's expecting some sort of job from us, you know. And then Annie shouted at him and he got, you know, all cross and then stomped off. But then we were still left and it was getting dark and we were in the woods. So then we had to, um, you know, pack up again because I was like, we can't stay here. Because he knows and where we you are. And we went back to the road, really dark, couldn't see. And then where we camped that night, didn't realise till the morning, we heard all this noise outside the tent and we'd camped in a quarry. Oh, my but God. But it was a working quarry. Oh, my God. And there was God. all diggers and men stomping around doing it. was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, just You're, terrible. I mean. And also we had, we had no money at all, you know, so. I remember that was the other thing. I thought, oh, we went to Lausanne. And I remember going back to Lausanne years later, doing some comedy gigs and just going, oh, how great to be able to go in a coffee shop and buy a coffee. Mm. <laughs> because when I came here before, we had absolutely nothing. We sat and we went, oh, isn't this really lovely? We've got to hitchhike somewhere else because we don't have any money to buy anything. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's amazing you survived it. <laughs> A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Deborah. We're recording more live episodes and you can come and see us at Soho Theatre on the 18th and 19th of August. 18th of August will be a one-on-one -on -one chat with me and award-winning journalist Yomi Adekake, who wrote Slay in Your Lane. And it's about her new book, The List, which is totally fascinating. It's about a couple who are about to get married and then an anonymous list comes out on the internet saying that various men are predators or abusers in some way and our lead character's fiancé is mentioned on the list. It's got so many twists and turns and it's a real analysis of where we are right now in society and the internet. It's so beautifully handled and managed and nuanced and thought-provoking. It's one of the best novels I've read uh, in many years and I really, really hope you can come because Yomi is honestly one of my favourite people in the world. I'm not just saying that, I mean it. Um, that's the 18th of August, uh, but we're also there on the 19th of August. 
We are live in Chichester on the 21st of August, where we'll be talking to the cast of my new play, Never Have I Ever. You can also see my new play, Never Have I Ever, if you can get to Chichester in September. It's starring Susan McComa, Greg Wise, Alexandra Roach, and Amit Shah, and is being directed by the incredible Emma Butler. And we're recording episodes of The Guilty Feminist and Global Pillage at the London Podcast Festival on Saturday the 16th and Sunday the 17th of September. For tickets to any of these, go to guiltyfeminist.com and click on live shows. Except if you want to go to the play, and then I want you to go to cft.org.uk. You can also get ad-free episodes via Patreon, Apple Podcasts, or Acast+. And if you're passing iTunes or Spotify and you felt like leaving us a five-star review, we'd love you forever. It really does help people find the podcast, as does subscribing or following. And now, back to the podcast. Uh, You say in the book, the worst thing in life to Annie was to be boring. And the adventures you had with her, whatever they were, they were not boring. Uh, Exactly. There's there's a brilliant account of you living, I think, like around the Portobello Road, West London. And uh, Annie was working with an artist um you were in a band is that yeah this was I was very this was an I was very drifty phase so I was sort of doing odd jobs or I may have started selling vintage clothes because I did that for a while because I was very into rockabilly and I was in a rockabilly band that was my whole life and rockabilly friends and Annie got a job uh, being sort of cleaner and cook for the very famous artist Bridget Riley and Bridget says but she used to put an advert in Time Out magazine um, because she needed a housekeeper, but she wanted it to be somebody who needed the job for the money, but also was artistic because mm. she could offer them a flat at the top of her lovely house in Holland Park. You had this little self-contained studio flat. So she was like, I don't want them to devote themselves to me. I want them to have their own thing, but they need to cook three meals a day and keep the stairs clean and do my laundry and that. And uh, And she said that, Annie came to the door and she was about to interview Annie for the job. And then she noticed that Anne had brought a suitcase and she just, and it was, a, she said, I remember it was a silver suitcase. And I just thought, she's rather marvellous. I'm just going to give her the job because she seems <laughs> to have arrived, she said, you know. So Wonderful. She, and they got on really well and um, Annie fitted into it and would, and would do the work part of it uh, very well. And they were friends, you know, till the end. Um, she would always go to Bridget's shows. And that was the weird, like, if, in a, if it was in a movie, you wouldn't believe it, that Bridget Riley had an exhibition on, a retrospective in Edinburgh, and it was during the festival. And I saw, I saw the band, I saw the paintings that I was so used to, sort of running up to see Annie in her place at the top of Bridget's house. And down in the studio would be these huge paintings with all the stripes and in the studio, and people would be filling them in. And I'd be like, oh, she doesn't even do it herself, you know, because I know nothing about art. <laughs> and then I saw these big stripy paintings. And it was like, oh, my God, that was the whole of the sort of mid-80s youth. to me. Yeah. But I didn't go. And then I was in London probably a year later. Not like me to do this. I went to the Hayward Gallery. Just yeah. don't know why. And it, it said that exhibition was coming back. So I booked tickets for me and my sister's partner, Martin, to go. And we went on the Saturday morning and I saw these paintings. I thought, God, I know these so well. And I turned around and there was Bridget Riley. Amazing. And she was sitting there uh, looking this herself. She's in a wheelchair, but still looking as bright as ever. And, uh, and there were some people who spotted her. And I thought, oh, you know, don't bother her. But then I thought, no, it won't be a bother. She'd come mm. to Annie's funeral 
So I went up and as soon as she saw me, she was just like, oh, and she held my hand and she could not have been more gracious and lovely. Mm. And she explained to Annie who I was, um, to her friends who I was, who Annie had been, and just said the loveliest things about Annie. And she said to her friend, she said, oh, Annie was so funny. She'd make me laugh. She'd worked for me for about uh, three months. And then she said to me, she said, Bridget, these paintings of yours, they're just all the same. <laughs> and she went, I thought, that was so refreshing, you know. Oh. And she was just absolutely lovely. And Annie said that she learned a lot from Bridget about how to be an artist, how to devote yourself to it, you know. But Martin, her partner, said, no, I think she just learned She'd really like to have staff and a cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she would like from Bridget's life. Yeah. I just had a quick look at Bridget's paintings while you were talking about it because I just wanted to have it in my mind. And there are some extraordinary ones and they are all very geometric, but there's so much evocation of that era in them. And I think that mm. your book as well really brings that era to life and actually makes you rather sentimental for it, I think. And uh, there are people that, uh, you know, were not alive in the 80s that have been listening to this. Mm. And it's it's just a great snapshot. But I, I think one of the wonderful things about it was like how free, in some ways, how mm. much more in danger women were, uh, in some ways how much freer women were because of just the nature of, well, you go off into your own thing and there's a payphone to call your mum and dad occasionally, but they're not expecting to hear from you. And, you know, you, you can go and make your mark and do your own thing and be your own person. And there's not a lot of internet telling you what you should be or shouldn't be. You just find your little community and you you go for it. And I think uh, those stories really delighted me, as well as actually stories of mm. your childhood in Northern Ireland and Wales uh, that was more 70s, that it was a real yeah. view into, it's like a, a new view out of a familiar window. I mean, I don't, you know, lots of people who I went to school, I would say most people lived completely different lives, you know, and they went to university and got proper jobs. I think we were odd. um, And also, I I still think it's odd that my parents didn't go, what do you mean you've just gone to London at 17? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, And, but I, but weirdly, I think they, they lived very conventional lives. um, And, were teachers. They left Northern Ireland. Uh, um, my dad very much wanted to get out of Northern Ireland. And then I think, but he would, you know, he wasn't happy in the job he did. Uh, he was, you know, a frustrated performer. And I think he was like, no, let's see where, which way you want to go and find it. Um, and which does lead to, you know, it's not, it's not an easy choice sometimes because you do go, oh, God, I've got, you know, you can be 30 and go, oh, and I was 30 going, oh, I'm still waitressing. Well, where, where is this life? But at the same time, I knew what I didn't want to do and I knew I didn't fit into other worlds and being told what to do. And uh, London, I think for young people now, like then, you know, London was cheap. You know, you could live, get a job easily. You know, mm. I lived in Notting Hill. You know, and it wasn't fancy, uh, but you, you could live in the centre of town. And, you know, in that way, uh, it, it seemed an, e- an easier time. And if you were that sort of person, it was then you gravitated to London. That's where people came. You know, people would leave. Now people would stay in Manchester and be interesting. But everybody came to London then. So there, there, there were lots and lots of like-minded people doing odd things. And it, 
I think it was, you know, still coming out of that sort of punk ethos of, you know, do it yourself. You can do this. You don't have to have that 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 safe job that's there. Yeah. But like I say, there was a lot of people not doing that who were being very normal. Yeah. Yes, very. But it is it is quite strange that your parents were quite conventional and yet had two daughters, both highly unconventional. One, yeah. you know, assisting an artist and becoming a writer, and you becoming a stand-up comic and a writer, and you're you're both so free and you have such wonderful adventures in the book that I think it's sort of the book is the spirit of Annie as well because it's it's anything but boring. You know, it's it's every chapter's different, every chapter's new, and so I think if anybody is just interested in uh, from a you know this is the guilty feminist from a feminist Historical, perspective yes. looking at just you know the last few decades and how things have changed for women and what young women did and and thought mm. was thought was perfectly fine to do and also how we you know evolved into ourselves in you know previous decades or anybody who's dealing with grief or living with cancer I think no matter who you are you're going to take a lot from this book is there anything else you want readers to know about this book before they pick it up or anything you'd want to tell us about Annie? I think that strangely the that there's there's positivity as well that comes out of it um, in that I think she was thoughtful in although she didn't tell a lot of people about cancer she did put together this sort of little group and she was very careful about her partner Martin that she sort of created this, I felt, I say in the book, like she left gifts for me, which was her two best friends and her partner. And they really, really helped me. And I think we helped Martin as well. That We then were this little group um, with my brother mm. that we would sort of get together and just talk about her. And uh, her old friend Molly, who from school, will be, oh, Joe, that was so, so Caulfield, what you did there, meaning Annie. Like, you know, just when we're out to dinner, because I will do things that are like her. And then when she said it, I could go, God, I could feel it as well. That's just exactly what she would do with her hands. But it was that way of keeping them with you till you, I suppose, a bit like stabilizers <laughs> until you can go, no, I think I'm, I'm okay mm. that she isn't here. Because then you realize, oh, but they always, they always are here. Uh, and that I've learned to kind of love it like a sort of scar, I think, that you can touch and go I can feel that's there that that pain um and I want it there because I had a fear of it going I think because that would be mean that oh god she's you know it was like she wasn't even here but now I know that it's never going to go so it's it's okay and that's sort of strangely comforting in in grief Mm, I absolutely agree with that sometimes it sort of has to go away for a while and it's your body protecting you um, I remember after my dad died, like I just suddenly the pain went away for a while, uh, some months afterwards, and I thought, oh, I've lost him. And what kind of monster yes. am I that I'm not f- living in this terrible grief? And then it would come back in a wave and I'd feel grateful for it. But I learnt, oh, it'll come back from time to time, yeah. but it's your body cannot live 24-7 in that. So it does, it shuts it no. down for a while. Um, yeah, and it, and, it, and, it, and it does change. Like you say, I had to work for what I would sort of dread it coming and now I just go, oh, here it is. It's okay. And I think that's the thing, but it, it's there. And it is the loveliest thing that people are looking up her books. You know, that's, that's yes. a, a dream. That's so, so lovely. And, and what, also a, that, what a gift for you to have given her posthumously to direct people back to her writing. And to raise money for Macmillan because she was always about, like, you know, 
don't waste a day, be useful. Mm. So this would, you know, she would love the fact that she's being useful by raising money for Macmillan. Um, would you like to read anything from the book? There's two things I had in mind. And one, I think I might do the, the funny one, because this is the sort of the little sister aspect of her, because she was very precocious as a teenager, much more keen to get out there and meet boys and do so very boy obsessed, where I wasn't. Um, I thought that wasn't as interested in boys. It was more boring to me. I was interested in going out and dressing up and music. Um, but Annie, so when she was 17, no, she's 16. And my mum and dad said she could bring a, a friend with her on holiday. And we went to North Wales. My mum and dad rented a cottage near Bethesda. I mean, a terrible place to bring a teenager. So she was allowed to bring Tanya. Now, Tanya was... Um, quite a grown-up girl compared to us and even compared to Annie. And I remember she had a purdy haircut and wore full makeup. You know, she's like a proper teenager. And so they had gone, been allowed to go out for the night. And this is me. I was sharing a room with Tanya and Annie. I lay awake listening to every word they said after their night out in the local town of Bethesda. They'd gone to a pub and then some local boys had walked with them to the park and they'd sat on the swings. I like swings. I must ask Annie where these swings are, I thought. Mm. Then Annie and Tanya started giggling and letting out little shrieks. Annie talked about a boy trying to get into her trousers. Tanya said something about a boy getting into her bra. What was going on? I pictured Annie's trousers. She'd been wearing her navy blue Oxford bags. They were very nice trousers. I'd have liked a pair like that. Did the boy not have trousers of his own? Mm. What did he want with Annie's trousers? Annie said again that he really wanted to get into her trousers. What on earth was in my sister's trousers? <laughs> what did boys in Bethesda want from her trousers? <laughs> Lovely. And I always remember that just complete confusion about stuff like that. Um, it's a really lovely walk through your young mind. And, you know, you grow up with Annie as we do in the book. And uh, I hope everybody reads it. Uh, it's 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 very beautiful and it's very beautifully written. It's very funny and it's also very moving. I laughed and I cried and I got some great insight from it as well. So thank you for writing it, Joe, and thank you for really... Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project... There's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Introducing us to Annie, and I will also follow up and read more of Annie's work. Um, you can buy it anywhere you buy your books, ideally from someone who pays their tax. Um, yeah. <laughs> and just to remind you, it's called The Funny Thing About Death, 
by Joe Caulfield. And if you are in Edinburgh, this fringe, uh, you can see Joe at the stand. Joe, what's the name of your show and the time of your show? Called uh, Razor Sharp. I'm on at 8.15 every night. Excellent. Go and check it out. Uh, Joe is one of Britain's best stand-up comics. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, anything else to plug before you go? No, I think that's it. And thank you for, for getting the book so I much. really got it. I really, really yeah, got it. Great. But I don't know who wouldn't get it, honestly. It's, it's, it's perfectly written. Thank you so, so much, Joe, for joining us today. Thank you.